0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a channel on the New Books Network. This is a podcast for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Robin Morse, from the University of Virginia. Today I'm here to talk to Professor Matthew Hopper, author of Slaves of One Master, Globalization and Slavery in Arabia, in the Age of Empire, published by Yale University Press in 2015. Dr. Hopper is a professor of history at California Polytechnic State University, San Luis Obispo. His book, Slaves of One Master, was finalist for the 2016 Frederick Douglass Book Prize. In this wide-ranging history of African diaspora and slavery in Arabia in the 19th and early 20th centuries, Matthew S. Hopper examines the interconnected themes of enslavement, globalization, and empire and challenges the previously held conventions regarding Middle East slavery and British imperialism. Whereas conventional historiography regards the Indian Ocean slave trade as fundamentally different from its Atlantic counterpart, Hopper's study argues that both systems were influenced by global economic forces. Hopper's book links the personal his Personal stories of enslaved Africans to the impersonal global commodity chains their labor enabled. Demonstrating how the growing demand for workers created a global demand for Persian Gulf products, compelled the enslavement of these people and their transportation to Eastern Arabia. Welcome, Matt, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your book.
1: Thanks. It's an honor to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: Can you start us off by saying a few words about yourself and how you got interested in this subject?
1: Yeah. Thanks. Um, I think like a lot of historians, my path to uh, becoming a history uh, professor and becoming a a researcher in history and an author uh, was kind of a circuitous route. Um, I was a graduate student in history at Temple University in Philadelphia. And I uh, was working on a project originally uh, on the Congo, and um, I had been studying Swahili, and I had become increasingly interested in Eastern Congo, and that took me into an interest in East Africa. And I reached out to a historian at UCLA, uh, Edward Alpers. Um, who was willing to take me on as a graduate student in a second master's program in African Studies. And then I ended up continuing to work with him in the PhD program. Um, And I knew his work and I knew about him. What I didn't know um, was how brilliant he was and what a nice guy he was. And he took me under his wing um, and he mentored me. And uh, in many ways, just guided me to this project that ended up becoming this book. So, uh, like many uh, first authors, my first book is uh, based on my dissertation, and Ned Alpers was the uh, sort of the uh unnamed co-author and architect behind this so he steered me in the direction uh, of the history of the African diaspora in the Indian Ocean um he spent a good part of his life studying uh, the history of slavery in the Indian Ocean and pointed out to me that uh with a background in swahili and by this point I was also studying arabic that I would be ideally situated uh to do a study of the African diaspora uh in the gulf um and so uh I originally thought I might study uh, the history of the Congo, and I was interested especially in what Americans were doing uh, in the Congo. Um, but as I worked more and more with the Ned Alpers, I increasingly became interested in the East African coast and Zanzibar. And then with his guidance, that took me further afield, further out into the Western Indian Ocean, um, into uh, Southern Arabia and the Gulf.
0: So let's now turn to your book, Slaves of One Master. How did this book ideal developed, what was the research process like connecting archives in East Africa and the Persian Gulf?
1: Yeah, thanks. The research process was uh, somewhat of a long one, so I ended up doing a couple of years of language study uh, at UCLA in Swahili and in, in Arabic, uh, including a couple of intensive uh, studies abroad. One was in Morogoro, Tanzania for Swahili, and then another was in Sana'a in uh, Yemen for uh, Arabic. Um, and I originally planned to do a pre-dissertation year in uh, Yemen and Oman, and that was based in part on what ended up being kind of a misguided idea that uh, that southern Arabia sort of held together as a uh, you know as a unit, and that ended up not really being the case. It ended up that I realized that the slave trade to Oman and the slave trade to Yemen were although linked to. Uh, largely different uh, processes. And so it ended up not really being appropriate to study both Yemen and Oman uh, simultaneously or in the same study. But I was in Yemen on September 11th, 2001, studying Arabic, and that immediately disrupted any plans to do archival research in Yemen anyway. Um, and so when I relocated to Oman, which actually was a planned relocation, um, and began doing my work there, I was originally mostly interested in uh, seeing where communities of African descent uh, lived today. And so uh, my research process that first year involved renting uh, a little Volkswagen Polo, which sort of looks like a golf or a rabbit. And I drove it, I think, to the best of my knowledge on every paved road, uh, in Oman. I went everywhere trying to see where the descendants of, uh, of, uh, enslaved Africans lived today. And I ended up spending a significant amount of time on the Batna coast, uh, which is sort of the Northern coast uh, of Oman. And then in the area around, uh, Sur and Ras Al-Had, um, and then, uh, some time in, uh, in Sharkia and and Dahra as well, so more in the interior. Um, But I was surprised to see that there were so many uh, descendants of uh, enslaved Africans who were living in that Batna region, and that sort of sparked a curiosity that was later satisfied by archival work, um, in mostly in the UK. I also did a a second research year, and that was sort of split between Zanzibar uh, and the UK and spent the better part of the year working in the British Library and the National Archives, as well as in the Zanzibar Archives, and um, so those were the main archival collections that I, I worked in, but I ended up um, doing research in, I think, more than 20 different repositories in uh, more than six different countries. Um, and so that included uh, you know, some of the officials who were actually witnessing uh, the Indian Ocean slave trade in the 1860s, whose papers ended up in Edinburgh. Uh, missionaries whose papers ended up in uh, Birmingham Um, and then some Americans who were present uh, in the region and their papers ended up uh, far afield in places like uh, Wyoming and New Jersey Um, and so the archival research really spanned uh, uh, a number of countries and repositories and the research process that began in a Volkswagen Polo uh, really ended in uh, the archives as I Uh, began reading the accounts of enslaved Africans in their own words. Um, And those were recorded in manumission testimonies. Um, And that's what uh, became sort of the main source base for uh, tracing the lives of enslaved Africans uh, in the Gulf, their testimonies given in exchange for a certificate of manumission, largely in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, In East Africa, the source uh, the sources were quite rich, um, and there are a number of uh, Arabic documents that are preserved in those archives, as well as in in microfilm form in the uh, British Library and the India Office Papers, um, that provide some clues about how the Indian Ocean slave trade operated. But the most, um, but the richest sources for me ended up being colonial materials uh, contained in the national archives in the uk and in the indie office records in uh, the british library so i spent many happy hour um, working away in those two places and at the time uh, photography wasn't allowed in the british library so all of my notes um, were notes that i made on a little laptop computer Uh, while reading these. And uh, so now they do allow photography. So uh, there are a number of other researchers who are following up. And uh, I hope with their diligence, we'll have a number of other studies that kind of take um, what I try to do in this book to, uh, to the next level.
0: Thank you for elaborating on that further. It'll be very important for other scholars to learn from what you did. So in your book, you argue for new perspectives regarding the Persian Gulf, and in order to do that, you tie pre-oil developments in the Gulf to slavery and globalization in the Indian Ocean. Can you chart for our listeners how this came to be and why you argue for further analysis of pre-oil Persian Gulf?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. If you pick up a guidebook for any of the countries in the Gulf. Um, the the typical cover will juxtapose something that's quote-unquote uh, traditional in front of something that's quote-unquote modern, right? So you'll have uh, maybe a, what's called sometimes referred to as a traditional Tao, uh, but in the background you'll have this sparkling skyline of a pristine modern uh, city. Uh, or one of my favorites uh, on a postcard is a camel in the back of a a pickup truck and these are intended right to these images are intended to be jarring right the person who's showing us the photograph intends to juxtapose traditional and, and modern it's tempting to think about the development of the gulf in that way it's something that sort of is a stark contrast with the past that sort of comes out of nowhere um and some of the guidebooks actually do use phrases like that like just sort of you know uh emerge in a moment or in overnight, these um, these successful uh, thriving cities and countries in the Gulf. And in some ways, I think that's really problematic because it erases a part of the history of the Gulf that I think is quite important. And that is there is an earlier period of globalization that generates, at least in some circles, a tremendous amount of wealth. And many of the cities in the Gulf uh, become uh, sources of, of great wealth and become centers of uh, expanding populations and expanding architecture in the late 19th and early 20th century. And what's driving that growth are two key industries that initially are focused on the Gulf region. They're the pearl industry and the date industry. And for centuries, those two uh, those two commodities had uh huge markets in India and in the Middle East, the area immediately surrounding uh, the Gulf. So there was a huge regional uh, economy, um, but it became globalized in the late 19th century as American, European, Asian merchants would come to the Gulf to get these commodities. And it became uh, a really... Uh, it became, both of the industries essentially became globalized in that period. And it's in that period, we also see a dramatic expansion of the Indian Ocean slave trade. And the particular focus, at least in the initial uh, years of that, uh, the initial target uh, for uh, slave labor is East Africa. And there are longstanding um, connections with East Africa and the Gulf. And so in many ways, this uh, is um, it's not a surprising uh, outcome that the East Africa would become the primary focus. But what is surprising is the huge increase um, in the number of enslaved Africans who began arriving in the late 19th century. And in some ways, I think this is important to draw connections to what happened in the Atlantic world uh, over a century earlier, that it's not so much anything cultural, or religious about the Gulf that makes it the center for uh, the slave trade um, any more than in the Atlantic. It's culture or religion that's driving uh, the transatlantic slave trade. Instead, it's economics. It's the global economic demand for things like sugar and then later uh cotton, tobacco, coffee, other things produced in the New World, uh, but especially sugar, um, that is creating demand for enslaved African labor. Something similar is happening in the Western Indian Ocean. And historians have done a, a nice job of tracking what happens in East Africa as East African commodities become globalized and and, uh, and uh, expand to reach um, far-flung markets. Uh, in places like the United States, Europe, Singapore, but we had we knew much less, I think, about uh, the Gulf. So that made it a particular, particularly exciting place uh, for me uh, to study, uh, because if you visit the Gulf and visit the museums, um, many of the museum exhibits depict um, a sharp contrast between the present and the past, but also celebrate certain aspects uh, of the past, especially the traditions of harvesting dates uh, and pearls. Um, And for me, it was interesting to see how few of these exhibits um, highlighted the significance of enslaved African labor. And this, for me, kind of created a, a mystery that needed to be solved or and some detective work uh, that needed to be uh, done. I think often when people think about the Gulf too, when they've thought about the history of slavery, they've thought about it in the broader context of slavery in the Middle East. And um, there are some ways in which the Gulf fits very nicely into that broader paradigm, but in some ways it, it complicates it significantly. Um, and it certainly is the case that in the broader history Uh, of Islam. Slavery has existed in many Islamic societies. And in many of those societies, Islam improves the life of people who are enslaved um, by providing them uh, with uh, personhood and legal obligations that have to be uh, respected. Families, for example, aren't uh, supposed to be split up. People who are uh, Muslims are not supposed to be enslaved. Manumission is encouraged. Most of the references to slavery in the Quran uh, are toward um, encouraging uh, manumission. Um, and so in many ways, the Gulf fits nicely into, uh, into that paradigm. But many of the expectations that Western scholars have about slavery in the Middle East are complicated uh, by the situation in the Gulf. For example, looking broadly at the history of slavery in the Middle East, um, a Western scholar might expect that the slavery would tend to emphasize elites, people who are retainers or um, domestic workers, soldiers, concubines, um, harem slaves, uh, these kinds of elites, especially soldiers, are highlighted throughout the history uh, of the Middle East. But something different happens in the Gulf, although some aspects of uh, of slavery do look a bit like what you might expect, uh, knowing the historiography of slavery in the, in the Middle East. There are other aspects that look a lot more like Atlantic slavery. So for example, in the late 19th century, it wouldn't be uncommon for people to be working in productive industries rather than being in elite positions. Uh, Many people were certainly working in uh, hauling water and construction and as domestic workers, but a very large number are involved in the production of dates and pearls. And these are the commodities that are finding uh, their way to global markets um all around all around the world so for me this this um created a question that needed to be answered at least needed to be uh, researched further and that's what really got me um excited about this project that and tracing the lives of people whose voices um i felt needed to be heard and whose lives i felt uh, needed to be uh explored and and uh and and um um brought to the attention, I think, of uh, of a broader readership.
0: So, as you briefly mentioned, the East African slave trade provides a really crucial element for your argument. How did this particular trade corridor influence life and economy in the Persian Gulf? And were there specific nuances that defined interactions between East Africa and the Gulf regarding slavery specifically?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. We tend to think of the Indian Ocean slave trade and Atlantic slavery as two fundamentally different things, but there's a tremendous amount of overlap. And so what I like to emphasize is that uh, the slave trade in the Indian Ocean um, doesn't just overlap with the Atlantic slave trade. There are certainly uh, European slave traders uh, as early as the 16th century who are bringing people from Madagascar and Mozambique uh, to markets in the Atlantic and the New World. Um, That's happening very early on. But on top of that, there's also um, sort of a, there's a process where the Atlantic slave trade actually leads to an increase in uh, an Indian Ocean slave trade. And that demands some explanation. So uh, Portuguese, Spanish, Brazilian slave traders, French slave traders would visit the southeastern coast of uh, Africa and the island of Madagascar. Um, and especially after the islands of Mauritius and Reunion uh, begin to be uh, colonized by, uh, by Europeans, there's a demand for uh, slave labor to produce uh, sugar. Uh, so Ned Alpers likes to refer to Mauritius and Reunion as Caribbean islands in the, in the wrong ocean. And I think in many ways this is really uh, correct. Um, but Europeans begin targeting southeastern Africa to populate uh, and provide labor for those two islands but they're also bringing tremendous numbers uh at least half a million Africans are taken from southeastern Africa around the Cape of Good Hope to the Americas um, by the time we get to the middle of the 19th uh, century. Um, And what happens is with British abolitionism and the increased patrols of the uh, Mozambique Channel, uh, this makes it increasingly risky for uh, for European slave traders to to trade in that region. It's around that time uh, that the two key commodities in the Gulf, uh, dates and pearls, are expanding in order to meet uh, global rising global demand. Um, and so it's just at the moment that this slave trade in southeastern Africa is uh, being uh, shut down uh, to Europeans that um, people from the Gulf, many of whom have settled on the coast of East Africa, begin using uh, slave labor on places like uh, Zanzibar to produce other tropical commodities that can find global uh, uh, markets, things like cloves, uh, for example. Um, and what's fascinating for me about this is the people in Europe and the United States who are purchasing these commodities, cloves, dates, pearls, um, they're not thinking about these commodities as being produced uh, by slaves. And so um, they're you know, happily consuming these things while also advocating for abolition. Um, and nobody seems to be making the direct connection um, uh, at the time um, that a decrease in the slave trade to the Atlantic is actually uh, coinciding with an increase in a slave trade um, within East Africa, concentrated on the coast, but then especially uh, to the northward into the Western Indian Ocean, going to places like Oman, uh, Yemen, uh, the Emirates, and further uh, afield into the into the Gulf. Um, and so, in fact, the two histories are uh, interconnected, uh, the Atlantic uh, and the Indian Ocean. Um, and so, in some ways, we have to think about these two things uh, together, but there's also a connection between Uh, the Gulf and East Africa that goes back to uh, at least the 11th century. Um, And that's that the monsoon winds of the Western Indian Ocean uh, tend seasonally to take one, if you were to get in a Dow, leave in a ship from the Gulf certain times of the year, uh, the winds and currents are going to take you uh, to East Africa. And then the winds and currents will reverse. And that allows people to predictably return uh, home the following uh, year. And so there's a long-standing connection uh, between these two regions. It's a trade connection. It's a uh, a migration connection there are people from the Gulf who are settling in that region and we know that um, there are people from East Africa who are enslaved in uh, the Gulf region um, you know for uh, centuries but the numbers um, are inconsistent it's, it's impossible to say uh, that at the peak of the Indian Ocean slave trade in the 1860s, um, when thousands of people are uh, ending up in the Gulf, it's impossible to say that that trade was consistent going back for centuries and centuries. Um, historians who have made that kind of guess because they know something about um, uh, the revolt in the Abbasid uh, Caliphate. Um, you know, in uh, in in in, mid, in the medieval period, and they know something about uh, abolitionism in East Africa in, in the 1860s. Um, it's it's uh, the historians who have tried to say that, as uh, Copeland famously said, that it, uh, the history of slavery runs like uh, a, a scarlet thread throughout the history of East Africa. I think is really misleading. Instead, this is something that has to do with uh, supply and with demand. There are times when uh, in uh, the outbreaks of disease or famine or or climate disruption uh, in East Africa might, to put it, crudely create um, an increased supply of people who might be enslaved. But then there's also... um, something that must be said also for the demand. There's a s- relatively small population in the Gulf and now a surging demand for Gulf commodities. And this leads to a labor shortage that leads people in the Gulf increasingly to target East Africa um, as a source for enslaved African labor.
0: So let's turn to these commodities you keep discussing, the dates and the pearls. So I imagine most listeners are familiar with California-produced dates rather than the ones originating from the Middle East or North Africa, more common in American supermarkets. In your discussion of the date economy and its ebb and flow, you trace how economic factors in the Gulf influence the establishment of California date farms. How does a story about globalization and slavery in the Gulf lead to California?
1: Yeah, I found this really uh, fascinating because having grown up in California, if you visit California, you know that we have have a lot of these farmer's markets. And when you go to the farmer's markets, there's often a table or two of people who are selling dates. And the dates come from the Coachella Valley uh, for the most part. And it's tempting to think um, that these dates originate in the Coachella Valley. It turns out they actually have a fascinating history. And it's one that connects back to the history of the Gulf. So um, beginning in the early 19th century, Americans become crazy about dates. And this is difficult for us to understand today uh, in an age of mass manufactured sweets. But there was no Hershey bar before 1900. And in the 19th century, when Americans wanted to satisfy uh, their sweet teeth, they might turn to dried fruit. Uh, Dates are sweet. They're hearty. They're nutritious. uh, They're rich in sugar and very flavorful. And Americans became uh, obsessed with dates. We're not sure exactly when the earliest shipment of dates comes to the United States, but it must have been very early uh, in the country's history, the early 19th uh, century. These dates were so popular that the first ships to arrive in ports like uh, Salem, Boston, and New York um, would fetch the highest uh, prices. And so American sailors from places like Salem and New York would sail into the Indian Ocean to get dates. And it seems kind of uh, crazy for us to think about, but people want to sail uh, thousands of miles just to get these sweets. But they functioned in two ways. On one hand, there was a big market for them in the U.S. People love these, especially around the holidays, uh, Thanksgiving, uh, Christmas, New Year's. That's when Americans consumed most of their dates. And so these ships would race back in order to try to uh, corner the market by delivering these uh, cargoes of dates uh, early, but they also served as ballast. So you could actually sail in ballast with stone and then unload the stone into the harbor in Muscat and then board, uh, load tons, literally tons uh, of dates, baskets full of, of dates and woven uh, bags full of, of dates. Uh, these ships would often come uh, with other commodities as well. They would go to Aden and Mocha to get coffee, they'd go to Zanzibar to get cloves and, and ivory. But no ship wanted to return without some dates. So if they could uh, replace their ballast with dates, this was an extra source of income for them. And these ships would race around the Cape of Good Hope and, and make it back to the eastern seaboard of the United States where the dates would then circulate uh, all around uh, the country. So what happens is, um, as Americans are consuming more and more dates, there's still a population in India, the old uh, primary market for uh dates in the gulf um and so this increased demand leads to an increase in production and so more and more date groves are planted um that more and more dates are being harvested and shipped out of ports like um, muscat and, and matra and uh there ends up not being uh enough supply and so uh as a result, prices begin to, to increase. And the, the one date variety that's particularly appealing to Americans, the one that's the most popular is this date known as the Fard date. And the, the Fard date is uh, is so important because it ripens early enough for the ships to make it back in time for the holidays. Uh, and it's also very sweet. Uh, and so it becomes very expensive. More and more of these varieties are planted. Uh, other similar varieties begin to be expanded in uh, uh, in the Botana region. And this ends up creating a demand for uh, additional labor. And that inspires an expansion of uh, the slave trade with East Africa. But Americans are interested not just in uh, dates from Oman, they increasingly gain an appetite for what are called golden dates. and These are the ones that are produced in Basra and Baghdad. Uh, And with the uh, opening of the Suez Canal and the expansion of steam traffic, more and more American vessels sail up into the Gulf and they get both the golden varieties coming from Iraq and uh, these farther than other varieties coming from Oman. And uh, more and more ships come into the fruit docks of Brooklyn and unload literally tons and tons uh, of these dates. And some American merchants get the idea that perhaps uh, these dates don't need to come all the way from the Gulf. Perhaps they could be grown somewhere here in the United States. And so it's actually the federal government Um, through the USDA that sends the earliest plant explorers into the region as the United States is looking to find uh, crops that could be grown in Southern California and parts of Arizona. So to grow dates, you need extremely hot temperatures, uh, but you also need a good uh, supply of water. Well, Southern California has got the temperatures. It's got plenty of sunlight. It's got the high temperatures, especially uh, in the interior of Southern California and Arizona has plenty of heat. So the dates could certainly be grown there if they could have a source of water. Um, and so what ends up happening is increasing irrigation on the Colorado River leads ultimately to the accidental construction of the Salton Sea. Uh, they're in the middle of construction, uh, constructing Dams and irrigation channels. When in the early 20th century, uh, when some of these levees break, and for several months the Colorado River is basically entirely diverted into Southern California, and it creates this uh, artificial lake. I'm actually historically, uh, there actually was a lake there in, in, in very ancient times, but that whole basin fills in with water before they're eventually able to correct the problem, and more and more water is uh, diverted from the Colorado into Southern California, it becomes a really, through irrigation channels and things like that, it becomes a really ideal environment to grow uh, dates. And so the United States sends uh, somebody by the name of David Fairchild uh, into the Gulf, and he brings back some early samples of offshoots of dates. And very quickly, plant scientists discover if you want to grow date trees, you can't just plant a date pit you really need an offshoot from a healthy tree. Uh, Otherwise there's no guarantee of the product you're gonna get. And so David Fairchild visits several places in the Gulf. He visits Bahrain and Oman uh, and, and Basra, and he brings back some offshoots and these do very well at experimental stations uh, in uh, in the American Southwest. And he's followed by a guy called Paul Popeno, who's not officially working on behalf of the government. He's a private entrepreneur, but he's based in an uh, uh, area around Pasadena, and he owns some property in the Coachella Valley. And he brings back literally hundreds and hundreds of, of date shoot offshoots from the Gulf. He's able to package these things up, including some of the really valuable varieties. And he brings these back and has them planted in California, along with some of the offshoots that Fairchild had brought back. And in the early 20th century, for the first time, you begin to get date harvests in California. And uh, these dates catch on and eventually come to replace all these dates that are being imported from the the Gulf. So if we think about dates today, we think about our California dates, but they were non-existent before uh, the early 20th century. Um, And uh, and this actually has a serious impact on the Gulf economy, as we'll get to uh, in the later chapters I talk about. Um, you know, the, the period around the Great Depression uh, happens to coincide with uh, the collapse of the, of, the, of the pearl market. So dates and pearls sort of rise together and they collapse almost simultaneously, which uh, has uh, a devastating effect on the Gulf economy. It also will contribute to um, effectively um, an, a gradual end to the slave trade from East Africa.
0: So before we get to the end and the decline of these trades, let's look at pearls. The book's title is taken from a comment from a ruler in Qatar to a British official in 1863. Quote, we are all from the highest to the lowest slaves of one master, the pearl. Why did you choose this title and how does pearling connect slavery and globalization in the Persian Gulf?
1: Yeah, I was struck by that quote. So Paul Grave, who's traveling in the Gulf in the 1860s, uh, ends up meeting with a a man who's effectively the sheikh of of, of the region we today would call uh, Qatar. And this is really the epicenter of the Gulf's Uh, pearl industry. Most of the uh, productive pearl beds are in the shallow waters in this area north of the United Arab Emirates between uh, Qatar and Bahrain. Um, They tend to be on that uh, western side of the Gulf, but especially concentrated in this area. So here's somebody who has witnessed the meteoric rise uh, of global demand for pearls and he's a he feels like at least his his comment expresses that he feels almost like his hands are tied like that all of them even elites like him are enslaved to the pearl and he's saying this i think in part because he recognizes that his whole the whole region has become effectively dependent on uh the pearl industry pearls have become far and away the most important commodity from from the region. But there's also a certain irony in that comment. And that is because there is a very real difference between slaves and, uh, and free in the Gulf. And so he's saying this in one hand to highlight the economic dependence that the region um, has on global markets, but he's also masking the very real inequalities that exist in the Gulf. And I think that sort of the irony and the reality of that quote, I think, drew me to it. And it sort of, uh, um, in some ways kind of opens up, uh, the conversation about the economic impacts of global markets, but also the very real, uh, presence of enslaved people, uh, in in the region. So the background to this is the rapid expansion of the pearl industry. Pearls had been wildly popular in, uh, early modern Europe. Kings and queens would wear, uh, Pearls in, in uh, as pins or brooches or uh, necklaces and in crowns, um, and these pearls were initially coming from these um, newly colonized areas like Venezuela in the, the Caribbean, um, places like uh, the northern coast of South America, and the island of Sri Lanka uh, or Ceylon in the Indian Ocean. And all these pearls were circulating around Europe, became widely popular. But then during the revolutionary period, they became very unpopular. Uh, They became sort of a symbol of excessive wealth and they became very unfashionable. And uh, that situation existed for for several decades before pearls end up being revived. Um, And this happens in the late 19th century. and certain elites begin wearing pearls again, and they become fashionable with uh, around the time of uh, Queen Victoria and uh, Empress Eugenie. And in uh, France, uh, Queen Victoria was frequently depicted wearing a long pearl necklace. And then, following Victoria, Al- Alexandra would wear a, uh, a, a pearl br- uh, necklace, very almost like a dog collar, thick one. That was in part to kind of hide um, a blemish on her on her neck, uh, but. As people began to see photographs of these elites wearing them, uh, the fashion of pearls was revived. And pretty soon, everybody wanted to wear pearl necklaces, and uh, especially the wealthy, the nouveau riche, uh, the steel and copper and railroad magnets in the United States wanted to decorate members of their family uh, with long pearl necklaces. Uh, The longer, the better, Uh, the more uh, ornate, the better. And and so there's this new surging demand for pearls. But by the close of the 19th century, the world's leading producer of pearls is the Gulf. And what we don't often think about is that many of the people who were diving for these pearls were enslaved Africans. Many of them had been enslaved as boys, brought from places like Zanzibar and East Africa, uh, were raised maybe producing uh, things like uh, dates, uh, irrigating uh, date plantations, date gardens in, in places like Botana. And when they became uh, old enough to go diving for pearls, probably around sometime around the age of 15, they would be set uh, pearl diving. And these pearl divers would work long days throughout the pearling season, uh, certain months of uh, warmer months of the year and in excessive uh, heat and in uh, pretty um, challenging depths and really challenging uh, conditions with um, you know stingrays and jellyfish uh, risking their lives to pull these pearls out for consumers who probably weren't thinking very much about the people who were actually producing these pearls. So in terms of value, it's estimated that at the turn of the 20th century, the the Gulf was producing more um, pearls than all other parts of the world combined. It was really the epicenter of the pearling industry. And so the whole economy came to uh, revolve around pearling Uh, in places like Bahrain uh, and and Qatar. It's estimated that just about every male had some involvement uh, in the pearling industry. Um, And people who are capable of going diving for pearls uh, were already doing that. And it's in that period of late 19th century that there's an increased demand for uh, more, more pearl divers. Um, And I hypothesize in the book that that leads to an increase in demand for slave labor and increasingly are looking to East Africa to supply it.
0: Great. So after discussing these large macro flows of capital, let us now turn to the major actors in these stories and most importantly, the voices and experiences of the enslaved whose labor is being exploited. What was daily life like for these men and women as dates and pearls traveled out of the Gulf?
1: Yeah, so the focus of the book is the enslaved Africans who are doing the labor that supports these two key industries. Um, but there are a lot more Africans in the Gulf than just in these two industries. I'm highlighting these two because I think these two industries are the focus of the of the economy and because I think they're generating the largest uh a source of, of demand for African labor. Um, but Africans are doing a number of things. So if we think about uh, a typical, the typical life for somebody who's enslaved, um, the photographs from the early 20th century uh, indicate that enslaved people uh, went around barefoot. They weren't uh, culturally, it was frowned upon them to, for, to wear shoes. So they would be identifiable by being barefoot and usually wearing Males would wear something very simple that would look something like um, a, a loin cloth or a, a wrap um, that would just cover their lower waist. Um, many of the males would work in irrigation and in elsewhere in the date industry. So although it seems like you would just grow a date palm and then just harvest the dates uh, when the time's appropriate. In fact, it's actually really labor intensive. Um, so a lot of men would work in uh, pollinating Uh, harvesting the date, the date palms, clearing the uh, offshoots off of date palms, planting additional ones. But the bulk of the labor is actually irrigating these palms. And that's because uh, this is a region of the world that tends to be fairly uh, arid. And the sources of water tend to be underground um, or in artesian wells in the, in the hills and mountains. And so uh, those uh natural springs that uh, are in the uh, mountains can be channeled through something called the falaj system, and those channels irrigated date palms in places like the Smail Valley um, and in the uh, Dahar region uh, of Oman. But batana, which is the greatest area of expansion of date production and also the greatest uh, area of demand for uh, African labor, uh, the situation is quite different. There is water, but it is deep underground. And so wells would have to be dug. And then the water has to be lifted out of these wells. And so uh, people in the Gulf very cleverly uh, devised uh, a system of pulleys. Um, So if you can kind of imagine a large structure which um, would support a pulley, uh, and that pulley would be connected to a rope on one end, would have not a bucket, but usually um, a a bladder made out of uh, animal skins and would bring up several gallons of water per scoop. But on the other end of that pulley uh, would be um, an ox or donkey who would be led down a artificially created pit, sort of a ramp. And so as the animal would descend down the ramp, the work of pulling the rope over the pulley and lifting the water out of the uh, well and into these channels uh, was done but the animal won't do it voluntarily it has to be guided um, and so around the clock um uh, african men especially would be leading the often in chains we're told um would be leading these uh, animals up and down this ramp repeatedly in order to irrigate these date channels while other men would uh plug one channel and divert it elsewhere in order to make sure that all of the date palms uh, received uh, sufficient uh, water uh, to ensure production. And so uh, we have descriptions from uh, Western observers that often these men were in chains and that this, the uh, screeching sound of the pulley could be heard 24 hours a day, seven days a week, everywhere in the Batano region, and that there were tens of thousands of these pulleys working simultaneously. And so people traveling through the region would describe the almost musical sound uh, of these pulleys working. So a lot of people, uh, a lot of enslaved Africans were working in that industry. For people working in pearling, it was the grueling work of diving, but also the support staff for the divers involved uh, somebody who uh, in English we would say uh, was a puller. And if you can kind of imagine uh, a pearl diver would descend to the uh, ocean floor with the assistance of a heavy weight. Um, and there'd be on board, there'd be several different weights, um, you know, for, uh, people of, of various, uh, builds and, 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 uh, and weights, and that would take them down to the ocean floor and they would, uh, then free themselves of the weight and using a basket, collect as many pearl oysters as possible, prying them off of the, the seafloor. Then they would tug on a, Uh, a separate rope, which was tied around their waist. And that rope, would, when tugged, would indicate to the puller that it was time to come up, that the person was just about out of air. And so uh, the puller's job was to very swiftly pull that person up to the surface where then they could rest. And after a short rest, then descend with the weight and do this repeatedly all day long. So the descriptions we have from the 19th century of the polars and the divers, it's impossible to gauge exactly how many are African slaves or who are people of African descent, Um, but at least a quarter and possibly as many as a half of these divers uh, were enslaved Africans and and their descendants. Um, And so many of them were working in this grueling industry as well. Aboard the ship, they would have to open the shells, clear out the stinky flesh of the oysters, heap all this up and pass the pearls to the pearling captain who then would sell them when they returned to shore. And they would be away from shore for uh, weeks and even months uh, at a time. And so that work was especially grueling. But people worked in all kinds of different other sectors, construction, hauling water. Uh, many women worked in child care and domestic uh, work, uh, cleaning and cooking and the like. Um, and so people would often live as part of their master's household or or compound, uh, but often separate from the family. Uh, Some people were treated remarkably well. We have stories of people who were treated like family, but uh, very often as sort of like a junior member of the family. And we also have uh, horrific accounts of abuse. People who were uh, branded with hot irons, people who were manacled. Um, we have descriptions, especially from the manumission testimonies, of people being uh, whipped uh, for not working, uh, people being beaten severely for not being able to go pearl diming on account of a illness or injury. Um, we have all kinds of really horrifying accounts of abuse. And I think in this way it's sort of jarring for people who have an assumption that uh, you know slavery looks very different in the Middle East than it does in the Atlantic, because some of this actually looks quite similar, at least in the late 19th and early 20th century, um, when the soaring demand for dates and pearls uh, has led to uh, increased demand for African labor. And many of these Africans are being uh, horribly mistreated, and they recount that uh, in their own testimonies. Um, and so I think there's a lot that could be said. And in, the, in one chapter of the book, I, I go into a lot more detail about the kinds of abuse people uh, endured and the kinds of uh, lives that they would expect. We also do have some um, almost heartwarming accounts of, uh, of people being well-treated. So I would say if there's one word uh, to describe the treatment of enslaved Africans in the Gulf, it's diverse. Uh, the treatment is diverse. It really ranges from where people are, uh, which particular parts of the Gulf? Which particular uh, seasons? In which industries they're working in? Um, and also the people who are, um, you know, claiming them as their, as their, as their slaves. Uh, those people, um, you know, could be, um, you know, quite abusive. Um, others, you know, uh, uh, less so. So I think the experience is, is quite diverse. I open one of the chapters of the, of the book with a, a story about a, a woman who, uh, who comes looking for a, a runaway uh, slave who has uh, escaped and is complaining to a British official uh, uh, that his master, this woman, um, has not found him a wife. And therefore, he's uh, seeking his uh, his freedom, and she comes begging for him back and promising him a life. So there are, you know, all, uh, I think there the there are as many um, people who are enslaved. there are that many different experiences. And I think uh, for some people, it's a experience of, uh, horrific abuse. And for others, uh, some people are are much better uh, treated. But I would say the experiences uh, are as diverse as there are uh, people enslaved.
0: Thank you. And so, as we previously mentioned, your book follows the growth and decline of both the pearling and date industries in the Persian Gulf in the 19th and 20th centuries. How does this discussion of the relationship between East Africa, East, the East African slave trade and the Persian Gulf end.
1: Right. When we think about uh, the history of abolition, it's tempting to put all of the focus on uh, the British Royal Navy. And to be sure, uh, Royal Navy vessels um, patrolled the Western Indian Ocean, There weren't a lot of them. They didn't make a lot of captures. Uh, But we think in the broader history of the 19th century Indian Ocean, about between 20 and 30,000 African captives were taken off of uh, slave vessels by the Royal Navy. Um, And that's that's a lot. But there were other factors at play um, that contributed to the end of the Indian Ocean slave trade or the East African slave trade. Um, So certainly uh, European imperialism and colonialism uh, is a part uh, of the conversation. Certainly the Royal Navy's uh, role is significant, but there's also an economic contribution that comes from uh, the Great Depression. Around the same time, the date industry and the pearl industry uh, collapse, and with it, so too does the demand for slave labor. When the dates begin to be produced in California, this undercuts uh, the Gulf's market, international market for uh, for dates. And this has a devastating impact on producers and the economy in the region. It happens to be almost simultaneous with the collapse of the pearl market. Uh, pearls uh, up until the early 20th century were all natural pearls, but uh, Mikimoto in Japan Patents a process building on a longstanding uh, Chinese tradition of inserting uh, spherical pieces of shell into uh, pearl oysters in order to produce cultured pearls, what we today would call cultured pearls. And he begins mass producing them in the early 20th century. And they begin to flood global markets, even get mixed in together with natural pearls coming from the Gulf. And to the naked eye, uh, you and I could not distinguish between Uh, a natural pearl and a cultured pearl you have to basically look at it with uh, an x-ray or be a real expert a a jeweler as an expert even a uh, but to the untrained eye they're virtually they're identical they're 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 indistinguishable and so they begin to be mixed together Uh, and eventually the value of natural pearls plummets dramatically in, in the around the time of the Great Depression. And with the added impetus of the, of the Great Depression, combined with the collapse of the date market, uh, the end of pearling really just devastates the Gulf economy. And so this uh, certainly contributes to uh, the end of the East African slave trade. With the end of these two uh, industries, or at least the collapse of these two industries, almost simultaneously, there's a, a collapse in demand for African labor. And this is going to lead to a simultaneous um, uh, collapse of the East African slave trade. To be sure, there are some records of uh, ships early, uh, later into the 20th century that continue to bring African captives to the Gulf. That that certainly does happen, but the numbers are very small compared to what we saw at the peak of these industries on late 19th, uh, around the turn of the, the, turn of the century. Um, so there are a number of factors at play with the end of the East African slave trade, the history of East Africa and the Gulf are in some ways intertwined to the history of British colonialism, but I think in many ways historians have put too much weight on the efforts of the Royal Navy um, and less weight um, than I think is appropriate uh, when it comes to the economic uh, factors, if that makes sense.
0: While the book examines the economic flows of capital around the world, your work specifically focuses on the role of the African diaspora, both freed and enslaved, within these events. The Gulf currently markets itself as a cosmopolitan society uh, but still very Arab at its core. How is the legacy of slavery and the African diaspora dealt with, or not, by those living in the gulf today?
1: It's really fascinating if you come from the Atlantic world into the Indian Ocean because there are a lot of differences. Um, If you come in with an Atlantic mindset, uh, the general history of slavery in the Indian Ocean looks quite unfamiliar uh, because unlike in the Atlantic, It was possible for people to be enslaved in the Indian Ocean and actually have a high status to be uh, entrusted with um, great sums of money and uh, entrusted with great deal of power, even military power in ways that would really be unthinkable in the, uh, say, 18th century Atlantic context. So in in many ways, the coming with a Western mindset, if you're coming from uh, the United States or Europe into the Indian Ocean, um, it's, it's tempting to come in with an Atlantic mindset, in which case you would expect to find uh, um, people of African ancestry gravitating toward pan-Africanism, thinking about uh, things like um, reparations and thinking about uh, demand for um, uh, equal rights and equal treatment. Um, and, uh, and you have found remarkably little of that in the Western Indian Ocean, in the Gulf in particular. There hasn't really been um, a, a Western-educated group of elites who have called for um, uh, reparations. There hasn't really been uh, a, a noticeable... Um, pan-africanist uh, sentiment in the Gulf um, and in some ways if you're coming in with an Atlantic mindset this might be upsetting for scholars uh, of the Atlantic world um, But I would argue that the context in the Gulf is is quite a bit different you're absolutely right that the Gulf, considers itself, at least in official circles, to be a cosmopolitan setting, um, a place of of great cultural mixing, uh, or some of the countries will depict themselves in their museums and educational materials as a crossroads. Um, And in some ways, this is uh, something of a ruse. It's masking the very real history. Uh, One of the reasons why the Gulf is such a diverse uh, place is because many people were brought there against their will um, as captives and worked as slaves. And now their descendants are living side by side um, as you know subjects of the uh, uh, sheikhs and sultans of the of the Gulf states today in, in uh, states that are not democracies but monarchies um, and so often when people ask me about the book they ask well what happened to the descendants of enslaved Africans where are they and I tell them they they are still there um, they're less maybe less noticeable to outsiders. Uh, in part because there hasn't been uh, a great deal of pan-Africanism, there hasn't been a lot of uh, recognition um, of, uh, uh, you know, sort of a, a pan-African uh, sentiment more broadly, and there hasn't been, um, you know, as much of a call from the descendants of of Africans in the Gulf for that kind of uh, of identity. Uh, and I think there are a number of different ways to explain that. Certainly, the Gulf's desire to uh, appear as a cosmopolitan. Uh, place is part of that. So in other words, there are very involved state projects, um, you know, in order to portray a history that in many ways masks the history of slavery. Um, and so there are deliberate, um, you know, act, acts to sort of erase this history. And uh, in the book, I talk about a few examples that come in uh, educational materials printed in Arabic for students, uh, you know, videos and, uh, and professional productions that are uh, designed to, uh, to be for outsiders that in some ways allow for the possibility that perhaps there was like a voluntary migration or something, or perhaps uh, the reason why certain uh, African uh, musical and dance styles are present uh, among communities in the Gulf is because, you know, perhaps um, Arab traders saw these things from the safety of their ships from a distance or something, rather than the very real, uh, rather than the reality that people were, you know, who brought these traditions were enslaved, and so uh, there are a lot of tensions uh, involved in this. I think some very intentional forgetting, um, and then we also have to keep in mind because these states are uh, monarchies, not democracies. Uh, there's not the same um, uh, requirement for transparency. Uh, there's not the same kind of expectation uh, of availability of uh, of information, and so. Um, you know, in, in some ways, uh, doing archival research uh, in the Gulf is complicated by that fact um, that, you know, if uh, there are very real motivations for uh, states to kind of sweep this history under the rug, uh, they can do that in ways that would be uh, less possible in a democracy. But there are encouraging signs. Uh, one is just a few years ago, um, in some ways, uh, this is I would say Qatar is maybe ahead of uh, of my country, the United States, because they actually opened uh, a public museum dedicated to the history of slavery, um, and they did it uh, you know a few years ago. And I, I have had the chance to to visit and see the exhibit, and I think it's actually quite uh, done quite well. There's some aspects of it that I'm actually very pleased in. So, um, you know, in some ways, there are some really hopeful signs that uh, states in the Gulf and populations in the Gulf are are um seeking out this history and and uh uh demanding that it, it be uh it be told and in some ways uh it is being told i think in, in um i guess if i have one hope for this book it's that it would inspire um a generation of scholars from within the gulf who could do things that um you know, i couldn't do um Maybe perhaps anthropologists and sociologists who could deal with some of the uh, lasting legacies of uh, captivity and enslavement in the Gulf in ways that um, weren't weren't available to me using historical the historical documents that were available to me as a historian. So I think if yeah, there's one hope I would have is that that uh, this momentum uh, this progress, uh, if you will, of, of, um, of people seeking out this history and wanting to know a bit more uh, about their region's history um, would be met by uh, scholars from within the Gulf who would pursue this even further. Um, in some ways, I hope that I just kind of um, set the stage, uh, kind of created a skeleton or an outline uh, for people to go in and investigate further um, and tell this story um, in, uh, in more detail.
0: Well, I really enjoyed reading your book. And hopefully, those listening will take the time to pick it up and read a little bit further. Well, Matt, we've taken up a lot of your time to end. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, any of your current projects?
1: Thanks. Yeah, it's been a treat talking with you, and I really appreciate the opportunity. It's a real honor. Um, I do have a, a new project that I've been working on for the last few years. So this, um, you know, book has now been out for a few years, and so I've shifted uh, further out into the Indian Ocean to uh, to do a kind of a follow up study. So whereas this book is interested in what happens to the enslaved Africans uh, who made it to the Gulf, I'm now interested in the history of enslaved Africans whose journey to the Gulf and other places was interrupted by the British Royal Navy. Uh, so I'm working on a project now on a group of people known as liberated Africans in the Indian Ocean. And the liberated African as a term that's actually comes from the act of abolition in 1807. It's a term that's applied only to the people who uh, enslaved Africans who are on slave ships that are seized by the Royal Navy. So we think uh, there's a number of scholars who are now working uh, on liberated Africans in the history of the Atlantic and Indian Ocean. And we think there's a something in the neighborhood of 200 to 250,000 people who were taken off of slave ships by the Royal Navy. Um, in well over a thousand, probably closer to 2,000 or maybe even more uh, ships in the uh, history of the 19th century. The process begins in uh, 1808 and it continues right on through the uh, 1890s. And in the second half of the 19th century, most of these captures are made in the Indian Ocean. Uh, They tend not to be the big European vessels that have a, a name and multiple masts and Uh, Many of them are bringing hundreds and hundreds of captives across uh, the Atlantic. Uh, They tend instead to be smaller vessels that are captured on their way to the Gulf. And so uh, I'm part of a group of uh, scholars now who are kind of following this story. And fascinatingly, you might expect that these very well-intentioned abolitionists uh, would free slaves. Uh, After all, that seems to be their goal. But instead, rather than simply taking people on shore and freeing them, uh, out of, uh, apparently out of a fear that they would be massacred or re-enslaved, they insist on bringing them to a, a British port, um, or a place where there's a significant uh, British pr- uh, presence. And they, uh, after the case of the slave ship is adjudicated, liberated Africans are never freed. They're indentured. And the thought in the 19th century is that, uh, this is because of white supremacist and racist ideas at the time that Africans weren't really capable of appreciating their freedom. At any rate, they didn't want them to become dependent; they wanted them to be independent, which would come through uh, the attaining a marketable skill. So they were indentured to an individual who was uh, tasked with, um, you know, teaching them. Uh, Uh, Christianity and teaching them a marketable skill. And in theory, uh, the outcome should be uh, a number of uh, former slaves who are uh, wheelwrights and coopers and blacksmiths and seamstresses. Uh, But this actually very rarely happens. Uh, Well over 90% of these captives taken off of slave ships instead end up being domestic workers. Uh, or working on plantations or in fields and doing effectively the same kind of work uh, that they likely would have done had they been enslaved. And so there are all kinds of contradictions and paradoxes in this story, but I'm following uh, each of the 10 places where uh, liberated Africans in the Indian Ocean are taken. And I'm doing uh, individual chapters on places like the Seychelles, Mauritius, the Cape of Good Hope, uh, and Aden, uh, Mombasa, and elsewhere, Bombay. Um, and so I'm tracing, trying to trace the lives of these somewhere between 20 and 30,000 liberated Africans who were taken off of these uh, slave ships in the 19th century. And it's been really fascinating. I have to say, uh, I wrote chapter five uh, of this book talking about this process and um, uh, embarrassingly ignorant of how deep this history, uh, runs. Um, and, uh, I'm now following the story and, uh, I'm excited to kind of follow up on that chapter and tell a story that is actually much more nuanced, um, and much more complicated than I knew at the time I wrote this book. So it's been an exciting follow-up project and I hope to have it uh, available to readers in a, in a few years. Um, but, uh, it's an ongoing project and, uh, uh, It's um, nowhere near complete, but uh, Robin, as as soon as it is, you'll be the first to know.
0: Well, thank you very much. It sounds fascinating. Be happy to read more. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Dr. Matthew Hopper, in which we explored Slaves of One Master, Globalization and Slavery in in Arabia in the Age of Empire, published by Yale University Press in 2015. This is your host, Robin Morse. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.